All of us are on a journey of becoming, a complicated journey in pursuit of truth and deeper knowledge of the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that it can be a painful and difficult journey and far too often we are not given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson and I too am on a journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my journey and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions plaguing the Christian church today. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to live like Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith but it is perhaps one of its greatest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, welcome to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. I am your host, Josh Patterson, and it still saddens me to say, but this is the first episode in the post-Marty era (laughs) of Rethinking Faith. Uh, For the listeners who don't know, we released an episode last week called Farewell, Marty Frederick, uh, where Marty has actually stepped away from hosting on the show. he has taken a new job in a church in Vermont. Him and his family have since moved there. He's still going to be involved in the back end of things, helping me with editing and production and stuff like that. But as far as hosting goes, at least for this season in Marty's life, he had to, to step away. So we wish Marty all the best. And listeners, I'm sorry because I'm going solo and now you're stuck with me. But <laughs> <laughs> luckily for you today, uh, I am not alone. I have a returning guest and friend of the podcast, Dr. Thomas J. Ord. Tom, how's it going? Doing well. And I like to hear you say friend of the podcast because you've got a good podcast. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you have been on this. Let's see. This is your fourth time. And so that's the most out of anyone ever. Again, the previous record was also set by you at three. And so you're just smashing all the records. Very good. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know my hockey well enough to know what's a, what's beyond a hat trick. What's the four number? Ooh. Is there a name for that in hockey? There's not a name for it, but it's oh, okay. like, uh, you're just really good. <laughs> <laughs> hat trick plus one. <laughs> yes. Plus one. Like, all right. Sit him on the bench. This is not fair. Yeah. Having a, uh, sometimes commentators will refer to it as like, it's almost as if they're playing a video game, you know, time to yeah. put down the sticks and let someone else play. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, Tom, um, just briefly, for those who haven't heard the other three, can you just introduce yourself for listeners who may not be familiar with you? I'd be happy to. I'm a theologian, philosopher. I dabble in lots of different disciplines. So I call myself a multidisciplinary study uh, a scholar, I should say. Um I write books. I direct doctoral students in open relational theology at Northwind Theological Seminary. 
direct uh, the Center for Open and Relational Theology. Uh, probably the most important thing about me is that I wake up every day uh, aiming, intending to live a life of love uh, in all my actions toward my family and foes and friends and even uh, toward podcast hosts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perfect. Well, that seems like a pretty good aim to me. So I'm on board with it. Very uh, good. Yeah. So listeners, um, just briefly about Tom. So you heard me say that Tom has been on before and it all started with the first book I ever read by Tom called uh, The Uncontrolling Love of God. So that was the first book that introduced me to your work. And then I went to God Can't and we had a fun conversation there. We did a Q&A for God Can't and now you're back at it again with a new book that is fantastic, by the way, called Open and Relational Theology, an Introduction to Life-Changing Ideas. Oh, thanks for your kind words. I, I wanted to, you know, sometimes we get concentrated on specific questions. We kind of get into the weeds and that's important, but I wanted to sort of stand back and get a bird's eye view of this theological vision of things and also write in a way that my mother could understand. So this is, <laughs> this is uh, meant for the average Joe and Jane on the street, uh, and it introduces open and relational theology more broadly. Yes, I love it, uh, especially because whenever, so my grandmother, um, she likes to call and talk to me, and she'll get me going on these long theological rants and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And she says, Josh, I'm going to be honest with you. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about, but I'm <laughs> glad to see how excited you are about it. And oh, so open and relational theology comes up a lot. So I'm, will be happy to hand my grandmother a copy of your new book. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. So you can catch on a little bit and, and, you know, <laughs> be like, all right, at least a little bit of what Josh says might make sense. There we go. <laughs> So um, I'm excited for this because one, I haven't done surprisingly like a proper what is open and relational theology kind of episode. We've yeah. done episodes where that has come up or where ideas have been talked about or presented, but never just a straight up here it is. And so Great. I think this is going to be a really helpful resource for a lot of people. And just for starters, though, say someone's coming to the podcast, they're listening today, and they're like, oh, open and relational theology. I have no idea what that is. Why would <laughs> I even want to look into that? Why is yeah. this something people should care about? Well, the label open and relational is kind of an umbrella label under which some other kind of theological terms that maybe some people have heard of uh, reside. So if you've heard of the phrase like relational theology or open theology or process theology uh, or even some forms of feminist theology, post-colonial, I mean, we can get technical pretty quickly, but open relational is this umbrella term that designates two big ideas. The one idea is that God is relational. God is really affected or influenced by what we do, what creation does, and this kind of giving and receiving ongoing interaction. And the second idea is that God faces an open future, just like we face an open future. And that future hasn't been settled. It's, it's uh, you know, God has plans, God knows possibilities, but what exactly the future will be, we don't know, and not even God knows. 
So another way to put it is that God is moving through time with us into an open and unsettled future. Sweet. Well, so if hmm, with that in mind, as an overview of open and relational theology, if somebody is, you know, coming from a place of, yeah, so I've, I've grown up in church and like I already kind of think I know what God is like. I don't yeah. really, you know, why, why would I even want to like look at this? Is this even something worth considering? What would you say to somebody asking a question like that? I would say that this way of thinking about God answers a ton of questions that people have. People who've been around church for a long time or people who are just kind of, you know, being introduced to theology and first starting to think about it. For instance, uh, just before we got on here, I got a note from a, a gentleman in India who has been wondering about the question of free will and can he really make free will choices if God knows with absolute certainty everything that he was going to do in the future? Because if God knows that and God can't make a mistake, it seems like he doesn't really have a choice to do other than what God already knows God, that he's going to do. And so he wants, he likes open theology because it says he's really free. God doesn't know for sure. And that makes sense. Other people have the big questions about um, evil, suffering. If God is so loving, loves everyone all the time, then why doesn't God stop the crap that happens in our lives and in the world? And uh, open a relational theology says you need to rethink what God's able to do in light of God's love. Other people think of God as sort of out there in outer space, occasionally intervening to meddle with what's going on in the world, to fix things, uh, but not really present with us. But open and relational theology says God is always present and active in every single situation. God isn't up on Mars eating popcorn. Uh, God is engaged moment by moment. I could go on and on, and of course, that's what I do in the book, but those are some of the things that I would say to the person you you hypothetically propose. Yeah, and for me, just like personally, the two things that really pushed me towards open and relational theology, um, and I, you mentioned both of these in your book, and actually you just mentioned one of them. One was the problem of evil, mm -hmm. um, because I felt like all the other answers just sucked. And, right. <laughs> or, or not not satisfactory or not satisfying <laughs> is the more academic language to use um and the other one was just experience like the reality that i experienced mm. didn't make like came into clash with what i was taught growing up in the church and yep. they started bumping heads and so i was like hmm something has to give here and that was like another like precursor introduction for myself um that makes a lot of sense. I mean, open relational theology really takes serious our deep experiences and our intuitions. So like, for instance, um, we'll call it in the book, I call it conventional theology. Conventional theology will say, you know, God's a loving God, but then it'll turn right back around and say, but God sends to eternity, uh, eternity people who've never uh, said, yes, they, they have to go and be tormented in hell. And so you think, okay, now how can God be loving if God's sending some people to eternal conscious torment? Or they'll say, oh, God is so loving 
but God's not relational. God's not influenced at all by what we do. God has no emotions. Um, and none of that stuff fits with what we know from our personal experience of love. So what you describe, I think, is a great way to, uh, one of the great reasons people embrace open and relational theology. Yeah, the the hell bit always tripped me out too, uh, especially because when you think about it, in, in order for eternal conscious torment to be a thing, um, assuming that God is the sustainer and giver of life, uh, whatever that may look like, God would have to sustain somebody, keeping them in existence, consciousness, whatever, for eternity and torture them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that right. is definitely not loving. <laughs> no. It so. goes through every intuition we have about love. Yeah. And, you know, as we've talked in some of the previous um, conversations, uh, a lot of people started wondering about the conventional God's view of love when they realized that God was either causing every rape, Holocaust, or tortured child, or that God was allowing it. Because, mm -hmm. you know, if you're a loving person and you can stop that crap, then why wouldn't you do that? Mm -hmm. The problem of evil also undermined uh, our intuitions about love. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the two kind of like conventional views or understandings of God theologically, um, just for listeners, so they know what we're talking about. One would be like a purely deterministic kind of God, like the God of John Calvin, who mm -hmm. predetermines everything, right? Meticulous providence. If it happened, it's because God planned and ordained it and willed it. Right. God wrote it at the future, past, present, everything is settled. Um, and then the other one is the like more Arminian perspective where it's like, well, people have free will, but God still foreknows the future, which, as you mentioned earlier, doesn't really make sense. No. Uh, <laughs> and I think, too, I wanted to ask you this just because I, I very well could be wrong. Uh, but when it comes to a lot of our conventional theological understandings of God, they're mostly based on like older Greek philosophy, like heavily influenced by older Greek philosophy, right? And Many so like, of them are, yeah. Okay, and so is there like some kind of fault then if these ancient Greek philosophies are not up to date with, say, modern science or, you know, quantum theory or things like that? Um, like for me, if that's the case, then that is another reason to kind of maybe want to set these aside because the philosophies that they were built off of aren't able to keep up with the world as we know it and experience it. And God has to at least be as big as the world that we know and experience. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who just say, look, uh, Neoplatonic philosophy doesn't make sense in our world, especially after Darwin, after quantum physics, after a developmental view of history, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so, yeah, there's good reasons from science and philosophy to set aside Neoplatonic thought and the kind of God that matches that philosophy. Hmm. But there's also really good biblical reasons to set aside that <laughs> Neoplatonic thought. I mean, the God described in most of scripture 
is a real actor who has real interactions with creation, who's affected by what we do, happy, sad, angry, pleased in relation to what we do, makes covenants. Uh, so, you know, yes, there's some parts of scripture that present God as unloving, as doing or wanting bad things, but the majority picture of the God of the Bible is a loving parent or, or a, a loving spouse or even a loving friend. Mm. Yeah, for listeners, if you want to understand uh, from an open and relational perspective what inspiration of scripture might look like, uh, Gabriel Gordon was on the show, thanks to your recommendation, Tom, not Good. too long ago. And we talked about his latest book, God Speaks, um, which was super helpful. Uh, and I really enjoyed his writing, but it, it especially because it helps make so much sense of um, why scripture might look the way it does. Uh, especially, you know, within the open and and relational perspective, it just, it makes sense that, um, people were active agents in the writing of scripture alongside of God as well. What an idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me join you in recommending Gabriel's book. That's a good one. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Tom, I, I think what might be fun is, um, you broke down your book into a couple sections and like some keywords like open, relational, etc. And I thought what might be helpful for myself and also maybe a little bit fun is I'll throw out one of the words, like say, for example, open. Great. I'll, I'll do my best to explain what I think it means. Okay. You fill in the gaps for me. What do you think? Oh, I love it. Yeah. Great idea. All right, cool. So we'll start with open. So when we talk about a God who is open, uh, one of the first things we're talking about is time and how time works. Yeah. And so basically the future in this understanding is, does not exist. It's not there yet. It only exists as a realm of possibilities, a set of possibilities. And so God um, doesn't know the future because there is no future yet to know, but God knows the future as a set of possibilities. Uh, you know, as, as, much as God could possibly know, God knows. God learns and experiences everything in the current moment, and that you know uh, increases God's knowledge and capabilities of um, being able to guess the you know future that's coming, um, because then those possibilities you know I guess would garnish different percentages or whatever. However, God does it. Um, but that's basically that's the gist of it. The future doesn't yet exist, so God can't know it. But God is active in the present moment, learning consistently uh, as we kind of paint the future together with God. Did I? Oh, I love it. Do that's an beautiful. okay idea. I don't have anything to <laughs> add that's substantive, but maybe okay. I'll add. Maybe I'll um, re- tell our our listeners about one of the examples I have in that chapter. Okay. I. I compare the open view of God uh, with music. Mm-hmm. Uh, if in the open view, God is more like a, a jazz player or a part of a jazz band in which people are contributing. There's no pre-written music and the tune is going to go whatever direction it goes based on how people play their instrument and they follow the jazz leader but uh, they can do other things Uh, nothing is set whereas the conventional god or the conventional theology has uh, already pre-made set 
you know, thing that's going to happen. It's like a, 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 either a CD or a vinyl record. It's already been recorded. All you're doing is playing what's already been decided. Uh, that's not the open and relational view. <laughs> yeah, I love that uh, picture and image of jazz. It's me too yeah, of the music. It's wonderful. Um, <clears throat> and it, it leads though to this question then that I feel like people would ask to be like, well, Tom, are you saying that God can change then? Yeah, that's one of the things <laughs> I want to make sure to, it's so I, I'm guessing you get that uh, comment as much as I do. That, All the time. You know, yep. So the really important, innovative contribution that open and relational theology has made in the 20th and 21st century is to say that we should distinguish between God's nature and God's experience. God's experience changes moment by moment in giving and receiving relationship, but God's nature, God's essence, that's fixed, that's steadfast, that's eternally immutable, to use the classic language. Uh, kind of like, uh, you know, when, when you were younger, Josh, you uh, had a you were a person, you were a human, uh, and now you're still a human. That hasn't changed. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> but the experiences you've had over that time period have drastically changed who you are. And that's kind of the similarity with God, except God is everlasting and you had a beginning. Um, so that's a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that distinction uh, was huge and very helpful to myself. I think- Good. In the, in the book, you referred to it as uh, dipolar theism, right? Is one yep. word for it, like a fancy word. And also uh, um, experience and essence by Nate. Yeah, that's the other word. The first one is the more common one. I coined the second one because I thought the first one wasn't explicit enough. So essence experience by Nate means God has an unchanging essence, a changing experience, but it's just one God. And there's no two natures or something like that. Yeah, I dig it. I like that a lot. I that makes cool. it's like a fun phrase to say too. Like that's right. <laughs> you sound smart, right? <laughs> right, right. And I think too one one other aspect uh, that I thought was interesting um, you talked about in that chapter was this idea of trusting the process, which all of my Philly uh, friends will love. Um, but when you talk about trusting the process when it comes to understanding God is open, what do you mean by that? I mean that God is present and active in the process of history, in the process of our lives, in the process of our universe and however many other universes there are. And because God is faithfully loving everyone and everything moment by moment, we can trust that God will always act toward the common good or overall well-being. God's never going to say, you know, loving these people is just sucks. I'm going to stop <laughs> loving you. you know? No, God is faithful because it's God's very nature to be loving. So we can trust this God in the process. That's different from having a God who is, you know, predetermined everything. And some people want that kind of certainty that, you know, everything is going to turn out exactly like God planned. That's not open and relational theology. But the price you pay for believing that everything turns out the way God wanted it is you have to say that when your sister got raped, well, that's what God wanted. Or mm. when children are tortured, yep, that's part of God's plan. And that's just and a picture of a loving God, at least in my mind. No, not at all. And I, I mean, I'm with you. And again, that's the problem of evil, which is uh, right. one of my, my leading factors as to why I 
find open in relational theology. So, um, you know, enticing, but also when it comes to process uh, thought, would it be fair to say that process thinkers are open and relational, but not all open and relational thinkers are process theologians? Nice, nicely put. Yeah, yeah. And there are a variety of process theologies and process thinkers. So it's not like one uniform thing, but that's a great way to put it. I coined the umbrella open and relational thought to include all the process people. Oh, sweet. But there's, yeah, there's some people who don't want to be labeled with process theology because of, you know, certain connotations it has. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. That was more a Josh question than anything else. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I guess, so something interesting that I found too, within this aspect of open and relational is there are some open theologians who still want some of that certainty. So they'll mm. say something like there are specific things that God preordained, mm. but not, but like nothing else. Like they want to say that God preordained, you know, Jesus dying on the cross, like from yeah. a Christian perspective. Um, but that, so that's like a, a move that some people make, but I feel like that's cheating. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know yeah. if it has to be all or nothing, uh, but that still seems like it would fall into the category somehow of like a, a form of self-limiting. Yeah. Well, I do think uh, you can be, you can think God is self-limiting and be an open relational thinker. Right. But like you, I'm not attracted to that option because of some of the downsides, not only for the problem of evil, but, you know, to go back to uh, the revelation of scripture, uh, why wouldn't God uh, make sure everything in scripture is just perfectly consistent and crystal clear if scripture is so important for teaching us about who God is? Uh, so there's all kinds of problems with the idea that God might occasionally intervene to fix something unilaterally, uh, but usually doesn't. But mm -hmm. again, that's under the broad, open, relational umbrella. You can believe that and still be open and relational. Sure. Okay, cool. And I guess one last question within the realm of the open bit is if the future is genuinely open and God is in process with us, um, what hope do we have that at the end of the day, uh, love wins or that God wins or something like that? Or maybe yeah. we don't. Maybe that's a trade-off we have to make. Yeah, I addressed this really briefly uh, near the end of one of the chapters. I've forgotten which one it was now, uh, but I've done it more in other books. Um, when it comes to what we usually call eschatology, there's a number of open or relational visions for what that looks like. My own vision, which I call relentless love, says that God never, ever gives up on anyone in this life and the next, never gives up inviting to a love relationship, never forces anyone. So therefore, there's no guarantee that everyone will say yes. But because God never gives up and because eternity is a long time, <laughs> uh, we have the genuine hope that eventually everyone will say yes to God's call to love. Mm. Uh, but again, that's just one possibility under the open and relational umbrella. Right. So within that perspective, then, because that was always one of my hangups, like I wanted yep. to embrace some form of universalism. Yeah. Um, but I was like, well, I don't think I can do that. Because if everybody at the end of the day, 
quote unquote is saved or whatever language you find helpful, um, then then God would somehow have to be coercive because you'd have right. to assume that people could still say no. So it didn't work. But that um, it's almost like a hopeful ultimate reconciliation or a hopeful universalism um, that God won't ever give up. And there's the possibility of universalism, but it's not quite set in stone. Yep. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Sweet. Good deal. All right. Well, let's, uh, I'll try to take a crack at relational now. Good. Okay. <laughs> so when we talk about uh, relational, this basically assumes that creation and creator have genuine relationship, that the creation is able to impact and influence the creator just as much as the creator has the ability to impact creation. So there's a genuine relationship happening where what creatures do affects the future, it affects what happens, and it affects God, just as as God moves and acts, um, it can have an impact on people as well. And that's the relational bit. Perfect. Love it. Yeah, it's exactly it. Let me go nerd nerdy on you just for a second, Josh. This is All for you, it. You, you might enjoy, maybe not every one of your listeners will <laughs> like it. But sometimes people will say, well, come on now, that God of conventional theology, that God's relational too. And what they mean by that is that God is relation related to the world in the way that the number two is related to the number three. Hmm. That is, there's a logical relation to it, but there's no actual influence or use the word impact. There's no real impact upon God or creation in terms of God's experience. And relational people, we want to say, look, yeah, God is related to the world like two is to three logically, but also experientially. Mm -hmm. God is affected by what we do. And of course, God affects us. So just a little nerdo thing there. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that, so one of the things that um, the relational bit then can throw into the, you know, throw a wrench into the conventional theology um, has to do with the idea of impassibility and suffering. Because, I mean, we already broke that rule when we were talking about open. um, But there would, people would say like, well, God, like we can't impact God's, you know, emotions or feelings or something like that. Um, but which then within scripture doesn't make sense because then is God just like getting pissed off at God's self all the time? It's like, that's, (laughs) that's how it works. Um, and so the impassable and the suffering bit, um, really come into play. And I find for me, at least that really taps into the experiential aspect that you were talking about of relational, because then it's not just God witnesses and sees our suffering, but rather God um, perceives or experiences suffering with creation, which in my mind, that shows genuine relationship. That's really nicely put. Yeah. And I think some people, um, for some people, this aspect of open and relational theology is the most important Hmm. because this portrays a God who is with them in the midst of their worst times and um, isn't, again, aloof, isn't unmoved. Um, and a lot of people think that's the great, that's one of the greatest expressions of love, the, the kind of empathy you would get uh, 
Imagine if, uh, you know, you and your partner are going through life and she all of a sudden goes through some difficult times, but it doesn't affect you at all. You don't have any empathy <laughs> for her. Would we say, you know, Josh, what a loving guy doesn't ex express empathy whatsoever. No, we wouldn't. We think there's something about a real love relationship that involves empathy, not only for the negative things, but for the good as well. And so that's a key element in the open and relational vision of God. Mm. Yeah. And then I know one of the critiques then that tends to get labeled once you start talking this way is that it's somehow making God smaller. It's somehow putting God in a box. And I love the bit that you talked about uh, in your book where you're basically like, well, everybody kind of does, <laughs> but some boxes are better than others. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that was one of the last things I put in the book, actually. Oh, really? Cool. Uh, yeah, I went back in and I had a section there that I rewrote. And I thought, you know, let's just because actually I think somebody on Facebook threw that criticism at me again. I've heard it a gazillion times. And, uh, and as I say in the book, every time someone accuses me of putting God in a box, I ask them about the God they believe in and they've got God in their own particular box. So the question I say, or I think what we ought to ask ourselves is which box seems to work best? Which box portrays God as uh, overall scripture portrays God? What fits with our experience? What's reasonable? What fits with science, philosophy, arts, et cetera? And, and I realize that's a big question. There's a lot of moving parts, but that's part of the process of working through this, uh, this attempt to try to understand something of who God is and how God acts. Yeah, there's, it's, it's so, I mean, it's like a, almost like a game that you can't ever really win. Right. At least not on this side of eternity, maybe ever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But again, um, um, what's your wife's name? I've forgotten it always. Noel. Noel. Again. Yep. You're never going to know well, know Noel perfectly, right? Never, ever. Right. You're going to go a whole lifetime. You're going to think you know some things about her, and then she's going to surprise you. Things are going to change, <laughs> right. right? Like you, you two have both changed a ton since you got married. And so you're both engaging moment by moment. You're going through life. You're wanting to know her deeply, but you're never going to know her fully. So it's not that much different to say you can't know God fully. It's, it's, I mean, obviously God's bigger than Noel, but still uh, there's just because you can't ever got, know God fully doesn't mean you don't need to have a relationship with God. Right. Yeah. And I think too, like this, I mean, this is just something that came to mind. Um, it's not something you necessarily address in your book, but something that has been extremely formative and helpful for myself within my own faith journey especially more recently has been um con contemplative practice yeah. centering prayers yeah. um i've read a lot of like the christian mystics um and it really seems like they fit in a lot with open and relational theology yeah. um, they're not calling it that but these experiential knowledges of god at least fit very nicely into this understanding of a relational God, you know, at the very least. And I, so the, the contemplative practice and open relational theology slash process thought have kind of like been meshing together for myself recently. You know, I just, today I was having a conversation with a, 
um, a priest in Wales who is thinking oh, cool. about be, uh, joining my doctoral program. And the project he wants to do is combining the spirituality of St. Francis, he's a Franciscan, with open mm -hmm. relational thought, taking some of the key ideas from Francis and then incorporating, <laughs> incorporating that with this metaphysical or ontological vision that uh, undergirds open relational thinking. And I, we both think that's just a, a natural thing to do. Yeah, and as soon as he does that and writes that book, let me know. And I'll okay. become his best friend. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love St. Francis. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. I think one more thing too, in the realm of relational that I think fits so well. And by the way, I loved your reference to uh, the Patrick's bad analogies video on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm not sure everyone knows that. So hopefully that's a, a shout out. People will explore yes. St. Patrick's bad analogies. It's so funny. But you did talk about the Trinity, um, and I, I liked that section a lot, and I think the relational aspect also makes sense in light of the Trinity. Like, when we actually think about the Trinity and take it seriously and apply it to Christian thought, it just it makes sense. So what do you have for us on the Trinity? I think you're exactly right. If you think the Trinity is an important notion for various reasons— uh, especially the social trinity, which is one version of the Trinitarian options, then you're going to be inclined to be an open and relational thinker, at least a relational, but hopefully an open as well. Um, one of the things I wanted to say in that section is that there are some open relational thinkers who don't buy into any of the standard views of the Trinity. So you don't have to believe in the Trinity. But if you start from a notion of embracing the social trinity, you're at least going to be relational. And I suggest you ought to also be open. <laughs> yeah, I like, I can't remember who I uh, first heard it from. Um, but there's this uh, sentence I always used to tell my students when I was still a youth pastor and a, a college pastor is that we are created by relationship for relationship. Nice. And I think that fits super well. Um, and then I like, I've, I've heard Richard Rohr talk about this, where he talks about salvation as um, being invited to stand in that flow of love mm. within the, the Trinity. Like that's what salvation is, is we're invited into that relationship. Yep. And I just, I think that's such a beautiful way to, to think about and, and talk about Let it. me go nerd out again for a second time for you. Here, yes. Okay? There's Please a paragraph do. in this book that has some uh, pretty novel ideas related to the Trinity that someone should pick up and write a doctoral dissertation on. I talk about how uh, if you believe in the social Trinity, you think that uh, the three members of the Trinity are giving and receiving love, um, that it implies that God is experiencing time because in one moment, a member gives, the next moment the member of the Trinity receives, whether or not you think there's a world or not, you know, in relation to God, you can say that God is inherently timeful or experiences time, even if there's no creation, because of this giving and receiving love in the Trinity moment by moment. That's not an idea that I know that anyone's ever really developed. A lot of people develop social trinity stuff, but the idea that there is timefulness within the trinity with or without creation. Yeah, I like it. I ha actually, you can see I have that 
that oh you do <laughs> yeah highlighted yeah, yeah i love it <laughs> yeah that's great sweet well man one day when i get the time and potential to write doctoral papers i'll work on it for you there you go well we've happens. already got several dissertations for you to write right you're gonna oh, do the man. franciscan one <laughs> yeah all, all the above all the above i'll just take up different pen names it'll be fun there you go <laughs> then at least you know i'll have a variety of pseudonames for people to get angry with and it just <laughs> you know? i love it yeah sweet all right. Well, one, another thing that um, you developed in the book that I absolutely love, and I actually saw you posted somebody like made a t-shirt uh, uh, with it on it. And yes. it was actually, it, it's really great. And I'm going to butcher how to say it. I've been thinking about it all day to myself. Is it omnipotent? How do you say it? Guess what? I coined the word. So I guess you and I get to decide the official way to pronounce it. Oh, there we go. How would I've you been... like to pronounce your word? I've been saying it omnipotent. Omnipotent. So, ah, I see. Omnipotent. Omnipotent. Okay. Yeah. Omnipotent. Omnipotent. Right on. Omnipotent. Yeah. So, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when when I start talking about God's power from an mm -hmm. open relational perspective, I sometimes have he people hear me talking about God not being in control and you know can't do this and can't do that. And they get the impression that the God I'm describing is a do-nothing, is not omnipotent, but is impotent, mm -hmm. has no power, is totally passive. And that's not the view of God that I have. I think God is the strongest, always active, always influential in everything that happens in this planet and every planet and every universe that exists. So there's no one more influential than God. It's just that I think God's love is what guides God's power. And because God is loving, God can't control others. God wouldn't want to force people or other creatures to do things. And so I coined this word amipotent, A-M-I-P-O-T-E-N-T, amipotent, you might say. Ami is the Greek word or prefix for uh, words we have like amigo and amicable and amity. And then potent is the word for power in uh, Latin. So basically the power of a love. Hmm. I love it. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> yeah. No, it's really cool. And you actually, you have this really good story that kind of you use to help demonstrate um, what God's power is like. And it's funny because um, I was having a recent conversation uh, with the, so I'm the general manager of a brewery here in Maryland now. And I have an assistant general manager and her and our leadership styles are vastly different. And I actually, today, as I was rereading your book uh, in preparation for this interview, I had like this moment of realization, like, oh my goodness, I wonder if part of the reason my leadership style looks like the way it does is because I'm so heavily invested in this open and relational God Yep. And so it's shaping my character and how I relate to people. Because for me, uh, as the GM, what I try to do is empower other people to use their gifts and talents and abilities to bring about the greatest good for the brewery. Whereas yep. for my assistant, she prefers a more like, I'm the boss, do this because I say so, like authoritative <laughs> kind of approach. 
Yeah. Um, but you ha- you shared the story in your book about uh, someone's car getting stuck in the in the snow, and um, she basically like seeks out help and empowers other people to then get the car out. Please correct me if I'm messing it up. Um, but then you say that no, the most right. powerful person in the situation was actually the girl whose car got stuck because she empowered others, set it in motion for things to happen. Right. Um, and that's what God's power is like. I really liked that a lot. Good, good, good. I'm, I'm happy you found that helpful. You're not the first one to say that that story has helped uh, the, them. Others have said the same. I, I, let me recommend to your listeners to pick up a book that came out a year ago, I think, called Open and Relational Leadership. Mm-hmm. It's a collection of about 70 essays written on leadership from an open relational perspective. And some of them describe exactly what you were describing about how, what leadership looks like in sort of practical businesses or everyday experience. Uh, so check that out. I think you really like it. Yeah, that's a fun little collab book. Actually, I have it on my show. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, but it's good. I'll put it in the show notes for our listeners. And then also I want them to look out for another collab book that's coming out from St. Sacrosage uh, as well, which is um, about participation with God in open and relational theology. Yeah, that should be out in August of uh, 2021 called Partnering with God. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Um, And not just because I wrote an essay for it. (laughs) I'm happy you did, though. Thanks so much for your contribution. Yeah, well, I was just blown away that you even asked me to write something. So thank you for the invitation. Of course, I I admire your theological prowess. Well, thank you. (laughs) It was it was fun, too, because um, like the idea that I tried to put forth for that book was something that you talked a little bit about um, later in your what was in the chapter about i think presence is uh no yeah it was presence is where you talked about salvation so i that yeah the essay that i wrote was about participation with god as like can that be what we mean by salvation yeah beautiful Um, it's kind of the argument i developed uh i guess let's we can jump to present because i think that's another thing that makes open and relational theology so um alluring and appealing as well is this idea that god is always present but you did something to start that chapter that really i again found really helpful and it had to do with creation and creating and so from an open and relational perspective what does it mean to say that god creates yeah i open up the chapter by talking about what it means for creatures to be co-creators with their creator And that once you start thinking about what it means to be a creaturely creator, it seems really obvious to extend it not only to humans, but to many other creatures. In fact, maybe all other creatures as co-creators. Then, of course, once you go that route, you have to say, then what is God up to? What's God's role as creator? And uh, here I get a little bit uh, technical. I don't think it's too bad for this kind of book, but I talk about God being the initiator of all that's creating that's good. And God calls and empowers and sparks ideas and uh, gives intuitions and all kinds of different activities that God does, but never single-handedly kind of punching out some created order or creature or something uh, all alone but that there's always some kind of responsiveness and contribution that creation makes in the ongoing emergence of life on our planet. 
And that, I mean, to me, that seems to make sense of the story that Genesis is trying to tell. Yes. Very much so. Like that sure seems like <laughs> a core biblical theme is that, you know, humans were created to be co-creators, co-laborers with God. And the, the idea, whether Eden is metaphorical or literal, whatever you want to believe about it, the idea being that Eden was like, you know, one size at first, but the idea was that people were creation was going to extend Eden all to all of creation uh, so that God's, you know, whatever. Um, and I was like, yeah, that sure seems like the story Genesis is telling. <laughs> right. Well, and in that first chapter over and over the, the spirit, the creator is saying to the creaturely realm, bring forth X, bring forth Y. And then once it's come forth, the creator saying it's good. Mm-hmm. And it's all you can see that creature creaturely response, even in the very first chapter of Genesis. I even think it's in the first couple of verses in mm-hmm. which it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the spirit hovered over the face of the deep. Mm-hmm. So there was something even at the very beginning of our cosmos. So even there, there's co-creating going on. Um, and once you see that, then so many other aspects of scripture just sort of jump out at you. And like, wow, of course, there's co-creating. Yeah. And it's like, that's cool, too, because then you can extend some practical implications of that. Like I have um, friends of ours that are like, I don't know if they like the term missionaries, but they're missionaries in Rwanda. They've oh, okay. been there for, for many years now, and they teach sustainable farming and agriculture to the Rwandan people. And one of the biggest insults in Rwanda is people will threaten their employees and say, don't make me send you back to the plow. Like, don't make Uh, me send you back to being a farmer. Like there's like, it's a slight, like there's a uh, farming doesn't have any dignity or something. And so they Uh teach dignity and farming, but also they teach this idea that all of the good and beautiful things that we create will be in quote, new creation with us. So as you're partnering with God to create things that are good and beautiful and true, those things will last, you know, they have eternal implications. And so that's just like, boom, wonderful. Like the inherent dignity that that gives people is fantastic. Oh, I love that a ton. Thanks for sharing that. Let me share something that's the opposite. Okay. How many times have people asked me, God, why did God create evil? Why did God create rape? Why did God create Hitler? Why did God create, you know, Trump, Biden, whoever you don't like? Um, As if they think God alone brought this thing about that they think is evil. And in some cases, they're right. I think torturing children is evil. Uh, So why would God create torture, they would put, say it. And the beautiful thing about talking about us as co-creators is that if we really have a contribution to make, sometimes we can not cooperate with God and our contribution sucks. It hurts ourselves and the world. And therefore we can explain the evils and even people who have bent their character toward negativity in some way as people who are not cooperating well with their creator and co-creating in a negative way. And therefore, God's not to blame for, you know, the crap that I mentioned. Yeah, and that plays in nicely, although I know there's a critique of this, that plays in nicely to, like, Greg Boyd's crucifixion of the warrior God kind of idea. Um, right. 
that the cross reveals something both beautiful and ugly. It reveals the beauty of God, but the ugliness of people um, right. acting negatively, you know, killing the thing that we should love. Um, and yep, Greg would beautiful. say that God stoops or allows people to do this. And I know the critique is, well, maybe God just, you know, is essentially loving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, God doesn't super allow. That's just in God's very nature. Um, but it's, I think it's the same kind of thing. Um, it is. It sure is. Yep. Yeah. And I'd be interested to hear what Greg says about that critique, because I feel like he might want to uh, embrace it and take that on and say, okay, fair critique. Let's, let's, let's grab that and run with it. Yeah, well, he and I actually had a conversation oh, really? on his show maybe six months ago. Oh, cool! And I I brought it up, and I brought it up in the context of his him using the word accommodate that God accommodates to the the vision of the people, and especially in the Old Testament. But um, and I said, you know, boy, that sounds an awful lot like God could have given them a crystal clear revelation, but voluntarily chose not to do that, mm-hmm. and. He responded, well, I don't think of the word accommodate in that kind of way. So I don't think he thinks of it as a self-limitation. So okay. if that's the case, then maybe, you know, it's just a different understanding of the word accommodate. Sure. Okay. Yeah, right on. That's cool. I have to go and listen to that. Greg's an awesome dude. I got connected with, with Greg through Jesus Collective. Oh, um, good. And I've had some really fun conversations with him. So yeah, I can't say cool. enough good things about Greg Boyd. He's an excellent guy. A hundred percent. I'm with you. Um, when it comes to creation, though, something interesting that you point out, and I think um, this got my buddy in trouble recently, actually. Uh, mm. And it's the idea of creation ex nihilo. Oh, yeah. Um, so in the text, at least, and he's a Bible scholar, an Old Testament, Old Testament hermeneutics guy. So he said that at least in the text, creation ex nihilo doesn't seem to be a thing because that's not what Genesis right. says. Now within open, <laughs> within open and relational theology, isn't there um, almost like an internal argument or debate about the necessity of creation yes. ex nihilo? Can that, I know that's a nerd question, but can you just entice me? <laughs> no, that's a really important one. Yeah, yeah. So under the open and relational umbrella, there's some people who accept creation out of nothing and some people who reject it. I don't know that anybody in the camp thinks the Bible requires it, mm-hmm. um, but there are some people who think that we ought to accept creation out of nothing for uh, scientific reasons, like it fits Big Bang cosmology in their view. It doesn't, Big Bang cosmology doesn't require it, but they think it fits it. Uh, others want to have a real strong distinction between creators and creatures. If you're really interested in the, like, the nerdy details of this, I edited a book about seven years ago called Creatio Ex Nihilo. It, no, 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 it's called Theologies of Creation colon creato ex nihilo and its new rivals and i think most of the people in the book are open and relational but they take different sides on that and they sort of argue it out so like philip clayton and richard rice are in favor of creation out of nothing and i and Catherine keller are against it and there's other people kind of in various camps You'd, you'd really, since you're a nerd on this sort of stuff, you'd, you'd love that book. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. So it seems like based off the people you just named, is rejecting creation ex nihilo, is that more a process thought 
than it is. It's no more common in process. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Right on. Sweet. Well, I'll, I'll stop the nerd talk so listeners <laughs> know what's going on. If they okay. don't. But if you're following, then go check out that book too. Yeah. Um, but one, so again, we're originally, we're talking about presence and there's this uh, word that we use within Christian theology. I grew up being told that God is omnipresent, that God is always, you know, everywhere, always. But um, that often doesn't seem to fully play out or be developed in a lot of our theologies. Um, but within your book, you present what's called panentheism. And I feel like with open and relational theology, panentheism is almost, I guess you don't have to embrace it, but it seems like a logical place to go. Yeah, most um, do. For listeners who don't know, can you uh, explain what panentheism is? Well, it's actually a contested term. Okay. Um, there are different versions of panentheism. The version that I'm going to lay out is the one that is most embraced by open and relational people, but there are other people in other traditions who have different understandings. At its basic core, pan means all, in means in, and theism. So the idea is that everything is somehow in God. The tricky word there is what it means to be in God. And um, if you have a certain way of understanding God, you might say that being in God means that God's like a big bucket and we're somehow inside of God like waters in a bucket. That's not what I mean. Um, or you might say being in God means something like God's a big flame and we're just one of the flames in the flame. And that's not my view of panentheism either. I take uh, the view that to be in God is to be in God's experience. So it goes back to what we've already talked about, about God being influenced by us. It's just that panentheism says that absolutely everything that exists influences God. Pan, that's all. And so God's experience is affected moment by moment by absolutely everything that exists in this universe and every universe. And I think that's really profound because it means that what you and I do actually has an influence on God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, again, brings in the relational piece. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Which if you want to have genuine relationship, you have to be able to influence each other. Right. Um, yeah, which another shout out to another mutual friend, Curtis Holtzen, his book, The God Who Trusts, uh, develops that idea a lot. Yep, another fantastic book. Yeah, we can't pump up Curtis's ego, though. I know he listens, and so, yeah, <laughs> can't pump him up too much. <laughs> oh, he's a good guy. And that's I love a really, Curtis. Yeah, it's an important book. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so one one thing that I thought was interesting, and maybe, again, this is is too nerdy, um, but when it, it it stems from how you talked about panentheism, your understanding in the book, um, it fit for me, at least my understanding within the realm of process thought as well, where it's like, it's not that people ha and have experiences, but rather that we are an experience. The, so the way that you talked about being within God's experience, if you know, we ourselves are experiences it like something started to communicate with each other there that I don't quite, I'm not quite able to put together, but is there something connected there? Am I headed in the right direction? Oh, can you ask your question a little bit differently? What is yeah. something connected between God so, being experiential and us or? 
Yeah. So like, I'm trying to remember because what I so I I interviewed John Cobb, which was really cool. Oh, um, good. Yeah, I had Trip Fuller actually help me write that interview because like Trip said the whole reason he started a podcast was to talk to John Cobb. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but um. But Cobb was talking about, and I know within process thought, there is that idea that it's not that people ha- are or have experiences, but rather that we oh. are an experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so if we talk about God um, also then as, like, can we talk about God somehow as an experience? Mm-hmm. Or if we, if we exist can, within yeah. God's experience, yeah, is there a connection between that idea and process thought? Like, is that a thing? Yeah, yeah. So process thinkers say that the fundamental units of reality are moments of experience. Mm -hmm. It's not like if you get down to the quarks that you're going to see a little, you know, bit of matter that's non-experiential. It's not like uh, billiard balls bashing against each other. Uh, Sometimes people think of atoms like that, but Mm -hmm. process people say, no, at the very basis of reality and throughout all of reality are experiences. Now, these experiences have physical and mental dimensions. So Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's not like uh, all totally in your head. And that would mean if that's true, that you, Josh, are comprised of all kinds of experiences organized in all kinds of different ways. And you have a history of these experiences throughout your, you know, once you were conceived to right now, moment by moment, there's this chain uh, or series of moments that comprise who Josh is. That's your identity, these, this chain of experiences. God, according to process thought, and I think a lot of openness folks would be open to this as well. God is also experiential in that sense, except that God's experiential series or chain had no beginning. It's Mm -hmm. everlasting. And so God has always been an experiential being or a series of divine experiences. And um, that's who God is. Okay, sweet. Cool. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's a wild set of ideas. um, And it sounds awkward to some people when they first hear it. And then once you start thinking about what the alternative might be, all of a sudden you think, well, maybe this is more plausible than I originally thought. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, that's like that. I mean, the reason I keep asking you process questions is because that's like a world that I'm slowly kind of dipping my toe into. Good. Um, yeah, and it's like I really enjoy it, but there is still also um, I'm still feeling my way around, so I don't yeah. quite have the language or understanding yet. Uh, yeah. But I'm I'm trying. I'm getting there. Well, so. a lot of process thought is highly philosophical language, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things I try to do is to take those ideas and make them accessible to the people who don't have a background in philosophy. Yes, which is so helpful and a big part of why I like your work because I don't have a background in philosophy. Yeah, yeah. And so when I go in and start reading stuff, like, um, for example, today I started reading uh, Physics yes. of the That's World. a technical so book, yeah. It's very much a technical book, but like once I look up what stuff means, <laughs> yeah. then I can start to put it together and piece it together and it's it makes a lot of sense, but it yep. can be difficult. So, yeah. Um, 
man, I really derailed us on a process train. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, when it comes to open and relational theology, um, one of the questions that I'm asked most frequently is this. They'll be like, okay, so what you're saying is that there was a chance that the atonement, and what they mean by that is penal substitutionary atonement, <laughs> right. never, never could have happened. Like that, you know, there was a chance that Jesus never died on the cross. And so your salvation is on the line and that doesn't seem responsible of God. Have you, you know, I know that uh, it's probably been leveled your way as well. What would you say to somebody yeah. who brings that critique? It's a difficult critique because what's packed into it is the assumption that a particular view of atonement has to be the right one. It's obvious that's the right one. <laughs> like, and so you begin with this notion that God was angry or needed to have someone punished because of sin. And then God said, well, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to have to have somebody die, but you got to have a perfect person. Well, I better go as myself or send the second member of the Trinity, kill that guy. That guy then is going to take our place and sort of this elaborate scheme that a lot of your listeners are going to have heard in one sense or another. That becomes the starting point by which you then ask questions about God's predestination, foreknowledge, all that sort of stuff. I like to begin by, by pointing out the holes in that initial starting point, not only philosophically, but just the idea that God needed to kill somebody, that God was so pissed at sin and couldn't be forgiving that God had to make somebody pay, and that was going to be Jesus. Or if you don't think, you know, some people say, well, God didn't kill his son. God took it on God's self. Well, is that that much better? Is it, you know, do you want someone who is self-flagellating, who hurts himself? Uh, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. So I like to start by undermining the, um, the satisfactory, uh, how satisfactory the penal substitution uh, theory of atonement is. Once we begin to do that and see the flaws of it, then we start to open ourselves up to say, okay, maybe when we think about salvation and atonement, maybe we ought to start with a God of love. Hey, great idea. You know, that seems like that's pretty central in scripture. Okay, if you got a God of love and this God's in relationship with creatures, wouldn't that God also want to have some kind of participation from these creatures? In fact, give them free will. Oh, okay, sounds great. Now, all of a sudden, you've got humans playing a role in the atonement, whatever theory you have, or in their salvation. And once you get there, then people start to see that maybe we can't have things predestined from all eternity. Once you get humans playing a real role in their own salvation, then those kinds of questions that you just uh, gave me start to fade away as maybe not so, uh, maybe almost nonsensical. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's funny that you phrase it that way, because I was just having a conversation with a buddy the other day, actually the Old Testament guy, and I was telling him that like, I used to be obsessed with the atonement, like I constantly was thinking about the atonement, like, what model is correct or all or all of them correct, blah, 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 whatever. And it just got to a place where like that question seemed like it was missing the point or yeah. like it was like you were saying nonsensical. And I finally came to a place where the thing that makes the most sense to me is actually an idea that I stole from 
the Eastern Orthodox Church, uh, which is that basically the quote atonement happens when the Christ um, is manifested uniquely in the person of Jesus. When God puts on human flesh, that's where the magic happens. So then you you no longer need some kind of violent atonement or anything like that. Right. Um, but more so, um, it's just this idea of, of God becoming human. And so I think that's interesting. Um, I, but then I'm even like, well, was that even necessary? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know, which is why trying to write a piece on salvation was helpful within this framework. Because... Basically, I argued if, uh, you know, God has a will and desire and plans, and we can go with or against that. And since God's non-coercive, he's not going to force us to do anything. So therefore, God uh, requires our participation in order to bring about God's will. And at least part of what we mean by salvation then should be participating with God to bring about mm. things that are good and beautiful and true. Yes, and um, that's that sounds open and relational right there. That we have a real role to play. It's not all God. It's not mm-hmm. all us either. But yeah. we have a real role to play. I think what helps me when I think about atonement incarnation, I I sort of begin with what some people call deep incarnation, and that's the idea that God's incarnate in absolutely everything at all yes. times and places. It's just that in Jesus we have a special incarnation. And so um, when you begin there, then all of a sudden some of the pressure is taken off of Jesus's death. And now we can talk about God active everywhere today in the past and all kinds of, you know, I like to hike. And uh, when I'm out in the wild world that's beautiful, I can think of God there. And I don't think that's, you know, Jesus of Nazareth sitting on a rock over there. I don't have to have that. But I can still say this Jesus of Nazareth is one amazing person who's a unique revelation of God's nature. And mm-hmm. therefore, I can be a Jesus-centered person without having to think, well, God only showed up one time in this guy 2,000 years ago. And that helps, I think, a ton conceptually. Oh, dude, an insane amount. And I mean, that's, for me, why uh, someone like Richard Rohr in his book, The Universal Crisis, is so Beautiful helpful. book. Yeah, beautiful book. Yeah. Yeah, just because, th- I mean, too, like, if you actually step back from the, you know, the whole thing and think about it for a second, you'd have to say that, because, so Rohr talks about, you know, creation as the first incarnation of God. And um, he says, without that, then you kind of have to say that the first, however many, 13 point six billion years uh god was just silent and did nothing and then <laughs> luckily one day god decided to write a book like <laughs> like so it's just so it it's it sounds so ludicrous yeah but to bring it into this perspective it's just like it's a game changer it sure is and you know the the main ideas in richard's beautiful book i i highly recommend it but the main ideas were articulated by John Cobb in 1965 in a book called Christ in the Pluralistic Age. Now, the book, because it's 50 plus years old, you know, it's a little dated in some of its illustrations and things. But the main idea of how to think about Jesus, it's like Richard read that book and just like updated it. <laughs> I mean, he says more things than what John does, but it's it's they're so similar. Yeah. And then what's helped me with that too is then how I've been talking about um, salvation in my own life 
has just been more so this idea of an awakening to a reality that already was. Mm. I just didn't have eyes to see it. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah and, and so I, I kind of like to take that idea of, you know, Moses in the burning bush and talk ah. about how there's burning bushes everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. a, a question of whether or not we see them, you know, and it's, and like the idea that, uh, when Moses takes off his sandals because the ground is holy, it's not that the ground was not holy and then became holy, but rather it was holy the entire time. Moses is just awakening to the, the, the reality of that. Nice. Yeah. And so I feel there's like a, that fits. Yeah. There's a process I'm sure, you know, uh, called Lectio Divina in which yeah. you, you learn to uh, listen to a text and try to hear God's voice and, you know, whatever the text is saying. I like to, but do also do something I call visio divina, which is look at creation in a particular kind of way to try to discern what God, how God might be influencing the world. And uh, um, it sounds similar to what you're trying to say there, except in a more visual uh, framework. Yeah. And is that part of like what you try to do with uh, like the theological photographs? Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, is exactly it. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Cool. Well, I, man, I'm trying to think because there's so much stuff, but. <laughs> well, one I of the was, things yeah. I wanted to make sure we talked about is yes. it all right if I jump in on something? Absolutely, because I have a million places we could go. So I don't yeah. know where you want to go. <laughs> That's one of the things I like talking about you is that you you get the ideas on such a deep level that uh, makes a conversation so rich. Oh, thank you. Um, this particular book, I'm, I'm kind of moving through the chapters, trying to describe open and relational thought, trying to account for the diversity underneath that umbrella, occasionally sticking in some of my own ideas here and there when I think it's appropriate. But when I get to the last chapter, I sort of pull out all the stops in, in terms of my view of things. And I make the case that open and relational theology, this framework, best accounts for the intuitions I have about God being loving and creatures needing to love. And um, in my way of thinking, that chapter summarizes some of the really important ideas for me personally. I embrace all the other ideas that I mentioned in the previous chapters. I mean, I have, you know, debates. Sometimes like I choose against creation out of nothing and others would choose in favor. So there's some differences there. But I think when I think about my own kind of big contribution to open relational thought, I want it to be in helping people to understand love from this framework. And that for many people, what they already believe about love only makes sense in an open relational theological uh, view. Uh, that God would want what's good for everyone. But that doesn't make sense in a conventional view. That God would be interacting and relational. That doesn't make sense in conventional theology. It does in open and relational thought. That God would always love because it's God's nature. Again, that's open and relational, not conventional. And in this book, I put, you know, in this chapter, I should say, probably 10 or 12 different ideas there. Um, uh -huh. So, I got really jacked writing that last chapter. I mean, I, I was excited writing the whole thing, but especially that last one, because um, those are ideas that are really important to me. And I think 
make me somewhat unique within the open and relational community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that the the following like the final chapter, the loving chapter, um, was definitely one of my favorite chapters as well. Cool. And, yeah, and that's that's I have notes here with like one, two, three, four, five, like eight different things to say about that. And that's why I, I was it. having a hard time. So I'm glad you jumped there for me. Good. Um, but one of, one of the ideas though that I really loved and you kind of, if I remember correctly, ended the chapter with was just this idea of uh, God's well-being mm. and that we have the ability to contribute to the well-being of God and to bless God. I just, I yeah. thought that was so beautiful. Oh, I'm happy to hear you say that. I mean, I have wrestled for many decades over trying to make sense of what Jesus said were the two great commandments, to, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And it was always clear to me that loving your neighbor as yourself had something to do with, you know, doing good to them, promoting their well-being. Uh, and, but I had so often been shaped to think that loving God must be something like desiring God or uh, honoring God or glorifying God or praising God. I I sort of took that word love and made it, uh, made it, uh, or thought it meant something in terms of expression to my neighbor as myself, and then totally changed the definition when it went to God. But then I realized, hold on a second, open and relational theology provides me a framework to make to say that love applies both to promoting the well-being of my neighbor, myself, and promoting God's well-being. And oh man, that's that just fires me up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, it but it also then makes sense of love too. Like right. Because if when I love my wife well, which I do at least hopefully some of the times I do my best, but that, that benefits her. Um, And then she can then reciprocate that love. And in a way it benefits me. So it's this mutual beneficial relationship. And to me, that is what, like, that's a great picture of love. Um, And so if you just have this like one way street, then it doesn't really seem like if God can't reciprocate or receive love can only give it, then it doesn't seem like it's a genuine loving relationship perfectly good yeah yeah. i totally agree yeah so i i really liked um like that whole bit of um being able to bless god and and increase god's well-being um it's it's beautiful and the i mean that whole chapter again i mean i loved you just you listed like here's 12 like boom 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 uh things it was just yeah it was good and it I guess to the thing, a good thing maybe to, to kind of wrap up our time on together would just be uh, the person of Jesus, because that's really the thing that for me is most compelling um, mm, within mm. the Christian faith. The, mm. I was talking about this earlier, too, like for whatever reason, out of all the things that I find wrong with uh, Christianity today or all the issues that I have or people who have hurt me, I can't quite seem to ditch this Jesus guy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There's something compelling and alluring about Jesus. Um, and I think Jesus also, out of my, I gave you two reasons earlier, um, my experience of the world and the problem of evil. But if I had to pick a third one, I would say Jesus is a primary Good. driving factor in why I'm open and relational. That's fantastic. Yeah, I can totally understand that. I like to say this. The Jesus that so many people love 
stands in stark contrast with the God of conventional theology. Yes. <laughs> the Jesus so many people love is one who loves everyone all the time, who's always acting for the good, et cetera, et cetera. The God of conventional theology is either aloof and unaffected or is vengeful and is going to vengeful and going to kick your butt if you step out of line, you know, <laughs> that the, the uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of thing. Um, so it reminds me of a, a college student I had one time when I was talking about Jesus and he said, uh, he came up after class and he said, you know, I really like that Jesus, but that God, he's one son of a bitch. <laughs> right. I thought, yep, that's the way most people think of God. God's this, you know, step out of line, he's going to zap you. Um, but what open relational theology does is say the God, the, the way Jesus lives, acts, his life, death, and resurrection gives us our best picture of a loving God. And we should get rid of all that crap in the conventional theology that says God is non-relational, wrathful, unmoved, unaffected, unemotional, and take Jesus as our primary lens. Now, there's going to be some differences between Jesus and God. Jesus lived in Nazareth. He was in one place. He wasn't omnipresent. Those, yeah, there's those kind of things. But when we think about Jesus's character, we should apply that to the character of God. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's like the other move that I make. I, you know, have a Jesus centered approach to theology and understanding to, yes. um, to my hermeneutical approach to scripture. Yep. Like Jesus is the lens that I go by, which seems to make sense if we're to be Jesus followers. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I, that it just works like Jesus centered yeah. theology, open and relational. It all seems like it, it meshes and works well together. And the, um, I remember it's, it's so funny when we first started talking, um, I was like almost embarrassed or afraid to say like, Hey, I'm considering open and relational theology because yeah. the people around me were telling me it's not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know if you remember, but one of the, it might've been the first or the second episode I had you on. Um, I think it would have had to be the first one with my previous co-host, uh, Matt Marty, the, uh, Andy, the previous guy. Like the only way that I could have a conversation with you is if I made the disclaimer, like, Hey, Tom, everyone thinks you're a heretic, but let's still have this conversation. <laughs> and so I like, I had to lay that out when inside it was killing me because I was like, yeah. no, like these, this is doing something for me. These yeah. people are telling me I can't, but yeah. then like, I don't know. So like the, the Jesus bit and then understanding this God of love all kind of really came together and culminated. And now like, I assume open and relational theology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I suspect you assumed it intuitively even before. Yes. It's just now you've got a conceptual framework to fit your intuitions. Right. And right. that's super important. Yeah. You can then actually live authentically. <laughs> yeah, no, dude, most definitely. And, and I think too, um, John Sanders developed this a little bit as well not a little bit a lot in his most recent book and i think also in a, a previous more academic book um but the idea of like the nurturant and authoritative right. perspectives it seems like so people are predisposed towards one or the other but it seems like open and relational theology works for people who are more predisposed to have a nurturant perspective of things yeah and like i think that 
like that makes sense also of my experience yeah um, as to like why something like open and relational theology might be so appealing and there's a fair number of people who are open and relational theology now who were once you know thought of god as the authoritative or the critical person to use that phrase those those terms from john sanders's book mm -hmm. so there's a number of people who've had who've changed their view of who god is and a lot of reasons for that but one of them is this Jesus guy, he just doesn't fit those other models very well. Um, and so if you want to stick with Jesus, I think you're often eventually going to come to an open relational vision. I hope so. <laughs> yes, I hope so. That's my hope and plan. I keep, I keep trying to push my buddy, uh, the Old Testament hermeneutics guy into yeah. open and relational thought. Um, and I'm like, the Old Testament's great for open and relational thought. God changes exactly. his mind all the time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and you've got some major heavy hitters, you know, people like uh, Terrence Fredheim yep. and Walter Brueggemann. And you got some some big time people um, who are open and relational. So, yeah, most definitely. So, Jace, this is your call to officially <laughs> come to the, you know, leave the dark side and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I remember cool. when I first came to my uh, my first teaching job in Idaho in 2002. Uh, one of the Bible people was there, and and I was telling him about an open and relational view of God, and he said, "That's called open and relational. That's just the God of the Bible." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're my kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It just, I mean, it does it. It it makes sense, and I know it's funny because like it it seems so apparent, but then you realize that you're grown up being giving arguments for why that's not the case. Yep. You know? Um, and it's just so interesting. Cause then again, it goes back to our conversation about the box. Everybody is operating out of a framework a perspective right. or has God in a box. Yep. And so you have to impose that box on those passages in order to make it seem like, well, it might say that God is changing his mind or might say that God is relating really god's not it's just yep. a metaphor or it's just you know whatever so yep. it's a, just another box another lens yeah i totally agree sweet well tom this is always fun well, i totally agree i love chatting with you thanks for the opportunity because i think this book especially for people i know lots of people listen to your show and uh, for people who have heard you many, many times talk about open and relational thought, because I listen to it too, right and on. I know you, you bring it up, uh, this is their chance to get sort of the basic ideas in language that you don't have to have a theology degree to understand. So this is for those kind of listeners, and I'm happy that you, you uh, presented this to them. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Th I mean, thank you so much for taking the time and energy uh, to write such a book, it's, it's su I mean, like I told you before we started recording it, it was helpful even just for myself. Um, Good. To yeah, and it's it's a great tool, and um, listeners definitely pick up a copy. If anything that has been said today is at least slightly appealing to you, please do yourself a favor, grab a copy of Open Your Relational Theology. Um, you won't be disappointed. Um, and I, and thanks I think, for your uh, thanks for your endorsement on the back cover. I appreciate absolutely, that yeah. Thanks, thanks for thinking about us. Um, it was cool. I I showed Noel 
And I was like, hey, look, I'm on a book. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. No, but, well, I want people to know about your show because I think you're doing really good things. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, it'll be interesting to see what the future holds um, now that I don't have Marty to rein me in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we're going to end up going into some, you know, open and relational process tangent for you know 37 episodes and it'll be a lot of fun for me so listeners stick with us please (laughs) (laughs) well thanks for letting me come on for the fourth time and um i look forward to more times if you're open to that i'd love to come back a hundred percent tom you are always welcome here um these are great conversations you're again i've told you this before but you're you talk about your your life you know, goal is being able to wake up and um, basically exhibit love to everyone around you. And I think yeah. you do a phenomenal job of doing that uh, just in your interactions, but also it comes through in your writing. Um, I think you have such a pastoral heart. And that's another thing uh, for me that was just is so attractive about uh, your work and your own, you know, personal brand of open and relational theology is the heart behind it is so good and pure and uh, Christ-like to use a Christian word. And so yeah, thank you. That's a major compliment, Josh. I appreciate that. Most definitely, Tom. Thank you for your time. And um, listeners, thanks for hanging out today. If you have any questions, feel free to uh, hit me up. You can DM me on Instagram or feel free to email us at rethinkingfaithpod at gmail.com. And then for information about different books and websites, organizations that we mentioned today, I'll be sure to link them in the podcast notes uh, as well. Things like Northwind and the Center for Open and Relational Theology, all that kind of stuff. I'll, I'll link it there so listeners can get uh, connected. Thanks, Josh. I appreciate it. Yep, most definitely. All right, guys. Peace and love. Have a great uh, whatever you're doing. Do it well and go Caps. Marty's not here anymore to say go Blackhawks. So go Caps. <laughs> <laughs> Peace and love, guys. Uh,